podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm Eddie Gibbs and welcome once again to Off The Wall, the podcast here on Anfield Index where we like to give you a small flavour of some of the content available over on the paywall side of our channel at Anfield Index Pro. So on the back of the various interview podcasts we've released with multiple Reds legends uh, since uh, the loss of football in this lockdown period, we're going to try and keep the top quality reminiscence audio winging its way down the web to you and starting from today, we're bringing you some of the highest quality podcast production that we've ever had on Anfield Index Pro as we revisit Jan Gorski Mashir's superb Jumpers for Goalpost series. This series, of which there are six parts so far, offers a narrative history of Liverpool Football Club and the city of Liverpool since Bill Shankly took over the club in 1959. It's set against the, the context of the events, culture and times that people live through. Before we let Jan loose on your ears, though, we wanted to share some of the info about uh, AI Lockdown Live. This is a free live video event that we have coming up on Sunday night. That's the 17th of May. And we have a top class lineup for Liverpool fans all around the world to tune in and enjoy. As many listeners will be aware, our party at the Paisley Gates, originally scheduled for this coming Sunday, uh, had to be postponed as a result of coronavirus. But if you bought tickets for that event, and uh, we thank you dearly if you did, then you should by now have received an email from Greg Cockcroft with your uh, with your refund information. So so please follow up on that. If you haven't received the email, please do an email pro at anfieldindex.com and we can, uh, we can look into that for you. Uh, so from 6pm to 11pm UK time, that's BST currently on Sunday the 17th of May, this is what we have in mind. There's going to be an intro show at 6pm, Gags, Greg, myself, we're going to get together on the video and uh, and introduce you to everything that we have lined up on, on the night. Then at 6.15 there's going to be Legends Lowdown Live, that's uh, Trev Downey, uh, who you'll be very familiar with on the, on the Anfield Index channel. He'll be joined by Reds Legends, Jan Mulby and Steve McMahon for a Q&A. If you do have questions for the guys, Please throw them in. Pro at Anfieldindex.com is the email address. In fact, you can use that email if you want to ask questions of anyone that's going to be uh, taking part in the night. So they're on for about an hour. And then 7.15, we've got Media Matters Live. Nina Cowles is going to be joined by our own Jim Boardman, as well as Neil Jones from Goal.com and James Pierce from The Athletic. Then at 8.15, I'm going to be on with Pro Plus Live, and I'm going to be joined by some of the, the most well-known voices on the channel. Dave Hendrick's going to be there, Simon Brundish, Dan Kennett, and Mo Chatra, all giving their unique uh, expertise to uh, to any questions that listeners throw their way. So we've got Mo for finance, we've got Dan for stats and analysis, we've got Simon Brundish for sports science and fitness, and Dave Hendrick, obviously, for any uh, scouting-related uh, and transfer topics. So uh, do throw your questions our way. Then from 9.15, we're going to have live music. Ben Burke from Boss Knight, who was originally uh, booked to do a set at the Paisley Gates Rest, is going to do one uh, down the uh, down the video line. So we're going to be streaming that one to you, uh, a 45-minute set there from Ben Burke. And then to uh, round things off at 10 p.m., we're going to have Late Night Desi Live. So a bit of real comedy value there. Gag Standom will be joined by uh, Desi Partners, Harinder Singh and Cam Brench for a uh, for, uh, Late Night Laughs uh, section there. And uh, interspersed amongst all this, we're going to... We've added an extra live band, uh, 
the Ragamuffins, uh, obviously, uh, they do uh, some famous uh, Liverpool-themed anthems, and they're going to uh, do four songs for us on the night interspersed between the, the various uh, segments, so look out for that. Yeah, so a reminder of that link once again, anfieldindex.com forward slash lockdown. Please do spread the word. We'd love as many Liverpool fans to get involved in this, in this event as possible. We do appreciate that. Many Liverpool fans around the world won't get the opportunity to interact with legends or attend sportsmen's dinners, legends events, uh, music nights and things like that. So this is an opportunity for them to do so. And it's completely free. Anfieldindex.com forward slash lockdown. Now, as always, I wanted to share with you some of the superb content we've released over on the paywall side of the channel in in recent days. So there's AI Scouted, Carl Matcher and Dave Hendrick, who have been absolutely prolific with their podcast during this lockdown have this week uh, travelled into a dystopian future where Liverpool had to replace every player in Jurgen Klopp's starting eleven with the best-suited replacement in world football. Can you guess who uh, some of those names are going to be? It's a really fascinating listen and uh, quite funny at times as well. Uh, the Scouser Tommies, uh, Jim Boardman uh, is continuing his origin stories with some of the voices you'll be uh, very familiar with on Anfield Index. And this week he spoke to Trev Downey uh, about how a boy from a field in rural Ireland not only became a red, but became probably the best-known uh, voice of Anfield Index Pro. There's also Kings of Europe, and whilst we're on the subject of Trev Downey, he has reached the conclusion of that wonderful documentary series. It features the likes of Jan Mulby, Paul Dalgleish, James Pearce, Jonathan Northcroft, Gab Marcotti, and others that you'll have heard on AI Pro shows in the past. The final episode covered the Egyptian king Mo Salah, and the full series is available to listen to now in its entirety over on AI Pro. Now, to enjoy all this fantastic content, we want to let you know that you can currently get AI Pro absolutely free for 30 days instead of the usual seven days. To sign up, all you have to do is head on over to anfieldindexpro.com. There is zero, and we mean zero, obligation to continue after the 30-day free trial. You can cancel at any point. And if you decide to stick around, then of course we hope you will, then the cost is only £3.49 per month or £39.99 per year. Now, we'd love to hear your feedback on any of the shows we do on either Anfield Index or Anfield Index Pro. And the best way to do that is to join our free Discord community. It's a thriving community of Reds and it's underpinned by healthy opinion and debate. The place to go to do that is anfieldindex.com forward slash Discord. That's D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Completely free. Come along and uh, start sharing the debate with other Liverpool fans around the world. Alternatively, we are on the regular socials uh, on Facebook. Just search for Anfield Index or on Twitter. We're at Anfield Index or at Anfield Index Pro. So without further ado, here it is. Our Jumpers for Goalposts Volume 1 podcast expertly narrated by Jan gorski Mashir. season of the Jumpers for Goalposts podcast on Anfield Index. I'm your host, Jan Gorski-Mashir. This season, we're taking a very different slant to previous pods, partly to avoid being yet another pod whinging about the current state of things, and partly because I've been asked time and again to talk more and more about Liverpool, City and Club, that many listeners and friends on Twitter are either too young or too distant from to know much about. 
Having been born just before the Shankly year and growing up with it, I thought this was a little niche that jumpers for goalposts with myself and some of the pod's older friends were in an almost unique position to exploit. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the club and city, for the rise of one was set against the decline of the other before their situations were, hopefully in regards to the club currently, temporarily reversed. In those days, before Europeans, Latinos, Africans and others made up half or more of any club team, the club and the game were largely parochial local entities, most often run by local businessmen, and not in any sense truly rich in a way that someone would recognise it today. There was no TV coverage, no Premier League, just the old divisions 1, 2, 3 and 4. If you wanted to see a game, the only way was to go and buy a ticket on the day. The European Cup was the only European trophy, open to very few teams, champions only of course, and although a few far-sighted British managers could see this was the future, the English FA, like pre-war American isolationists, were against such foreign entanglements and frowned upon it, strongly advising English clubs not to take part. They were ignored, though the FA saw the horror of the 1958 Manchester United Munich Air disaster as some kind of perverse truth for their position. At home, the League Cup had not yet been invented, and both Billy Liddle and Stanley Matthews were still playing. At that time, Liverpool Football Club, like the city that was its home, were languishing as something of a backwater in the old second division, managed by a former captain, the rather ailing Phil Taylor, a good and solid football man who knew he was out of his depth and that the club needed better. This is where we start our look at what would become the modern Liverpool Football Club, and in time, the modern city of Liverpool. And to discuss this with me, our old pod friends Mike von Herf and our friend Dave from Brazil. So let me set the scene. The music that introduced this pod was my version of Buddy Holly's Words of Love. Though recorded in April 1957, it wasn't heard in the UK until sometime in 1958, and of course Buddy Holly himself was killed in a plane crash on the 3rd of February 1959, so it seemed rather appropriate. It was the beginning of the 1958-59 season, and John, George, Paul and Ken, yes, Ken Brown, were still the drummerless quarrymen, knocking around Liverpool and playing gigs for beer and ciggies. Ringo was working as a barman on the Mersey ferries and was as yet unknown to the other three. The big sandstone and brick buildings of the old city were smoke-blackened and frequently shrouded in a clammy fog rolling in off Liverpool Bay. The mournful cry of the Seaforth foghorn was my bedtime companion for years. This fog, mixed with the coal dust of thousands of old coal fires burning cheap Lancashire coal, the Clean Air Act instigated to clean the deadly smog of London a couple of years earlier, was not yet effective in Liverpool. The houses and new towns being built to replace those bombed out in the city centre during the war still relied on coal fires. There was as yet no such thing as available central heating. A day shopping in the city centre usually meant coming back home with a nose full of black gunk. Buses were the main way of getting around, few people could afford cars in those days, and the old tram system that served the city well for almost a century was voted out of existence in late 1957. Only a very final few were still in service. Equally, the Dockers' Umbrella, the overhead electric railway which had taken people to work on the docks in the financial district since the 19th century, was now also gone. Just a few half-removed stanchions and abandoned ticket offices remained. It can be seen, therefore, that at least some of the city's wounds were self-inflicted. Less than half of the city's 700,000 occupants at the time had access to a television, which of course was black and white only and had two stations broadcasting for six hours a day, and less than a third had telephones. Polio was still a blight on the poor. 
but the 10 years old National Health Service was slowly eliminating the worst diseases and afflictions that were traditionally the lot of the industrial working classes. In Liverpool, as in other big metropolitan ports, all things American were looked upon as the promised land. Superhero comics, odd bits of clothing and most especially the rock and roll records brought in by sailors on the big merchant liners. Kids played football on partially cleared World War II bomb sites. Rationing had not long since ended and Tory Prime Minister Harold Macmillan told us all that we'd never had it so good. Despite this cheery prognostication, Scousers were leaving for Australia, New Zealand and Canada in droves. In the rest of the world, the Russian Sputnik 1 had been bleeping in orbit for a whole year and they were now racing to beat the Americans to put a man in orbit. In Hanover, Germany, in a long, cold, pre-climate change, snowy winter, I was about to make my first appearance, while over in America, President Eisenhower was quietly seeing out his second term and his Vice President Richard Nixon was sowing the seeds of what was to become the Vietnam War. A young Senator, John F. Kennedy, was getting lectured by his father to run for President. Meanwhile, in Quincy, Illinois, a nine-year-old boy interested in Little League baseball had no idea that one day he would become the principal owner of Liverpool Football Club. So that sets the scene for Liverpool as a city and a club in the years 1958-59. Now, my two guests, Mike Von Herf and Dave Caron, of course, were not native to the city. I wasn't, of course, strictly native myself, but I did grow up there. But they will have had their own perspectives looking back and where they grew up themselves at a sort of similar era, maybe a few years later than me, but let's see what they think. Mike, what's your first impressions? Well, first of all, just to set the record straight, I was born much later than this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so for me, looking back at the period from the late 50s, early 60s, that has been more of a history lesson than it has been, you know, something that was contemporary for me. Having said that, it is there are a couple of things that are that really strike you, which is how far uh, the club had fallen. Liverpool was a, a an important city, really the second city of the empire. Yeah, a big part of the nineteenth for all the nineteenth and a big part of the twentieth century. And the club was really a bit of a yo-yo. Uh, you'd have good patches and, and bad patches, and 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 to see how far the club had fallen by the 54 period and, and relegation and so on. It, it gives you a real perspective on what an immense job, what an immense task Bill Shankly had in rebuilding the club into something. Indeed, yeah. That he appear, apparently was really the only person who had the vision to understand you know, the, the, the club had the potential to become. And so you've done a wonderful job painting the scene, but as we've been talking about this and as I've been looking back through the history books and so on, it was a shambles. It certainly was, yeah. No, they, they actually uh, had approached Shankly twice before, and he decided he wasn't ready. And, of course, they also talked to a former Liverpool captain, who was now, at that point, Manchester United manager, Matt Busby, who'd also recommended Shankly. The directors, or at least a couple of the directors, were quite convinced that when the time came, he would be the man they wanted. Well, talk about being in the right place at the right time. But I, 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 yeah. I think as well, and this is what your intro points out, is when you look at what was happening in the city, Liverpool was culturally, not, if not, you know, along with Detroit, the center of the music universe. Oh, it was about to be, yeah. Or just on the verge of becoming that. And yeah. it's remarkable to see how his, uh, Shankly kind of tapped into that. Yeah, well, he, 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 it was a sort of symbiosis that the... The club and the Mersey Beat phenomenon rose at pretty much the same time. The year, of course, the Beatles had their first hit, 1963, Liverpool won the title. So it, it took the city, the culture of the city, and interest in the city to a completely new level. 
Dave, what's your thoughts about uh, the 58-59 era? Well, to be honest with you, Jean, um, again, I'm, I'm a little bit young for it. And, and I ended up doing some research, which, which I find actually to be quite fun to do uh, around Liverpool. And the reason I found it fun was I, I saw so many comparisons and likenesses yeah. to my own city of Belfast. Yeah, you know, of the, course, no. The, the rich uh, shipbuilding culture, uh, you know, a docks town. We took a battering like Liverpool did during the war because yeah. of that shipbuilding industry and, you know, what it, what it brought to the, the war effort. The uninitiated, of course, you had Harland and Wolf, and in Liverpool we had Camel Laird on the Birkenhead side. Exactly. Uh, who, who are, I believe, have restarted making ships from... No? I have no idea. It's quite uh, possible. Uh, from, from, what I I read, yeah. from what I read, they started uh, uh, building ferries again uh, around 1993, but they were out of business for a long time. Harlan and Wolf, of course. Way, yeah. Harlan and Wolf in Belfast um, are, are more oil rigs and, and, and constructing and maintaining oil rigs at the moment. Shipbuilding seems to have taken a back seat in both towns where it used to be the, the major, major employer for of course, there cities. is one, one major shipbuilding connection between Belfast and Liverpool, which causes the Titanic. Indeed, but we don't talk that about that well. one. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest with you, Belfast is currently slapping itself in the back. There's, a, there's actually a wonderful uh, new, mu- new museum has opened there uh, beside Harlan Wolf uh, around the Titanic. Yeah. If you ever visit Belfast, I would, I would encourage you to visit it. It's, it's, it's a wonderful visitor experience, but that's moving on. No, I, I actually found uh, a documentary online, Jan. Uh, it's called Morning in the Streets, and it was made in yeah. 19, 1958 in, in Liverpool. And I, I just want to run through some, some of the things. That that you know I picked up in it. Uh, it yeah. gave you a real feel of the city at, at that time. You know, you really got the impression. The imagery around the streets was the war had impacted the, um, the city quite heavily, and, and the scars of that war were still very evident. Oh, uh, they were. The people on the street, it, it weighed heavy on their shoulders. It was a heavy burden for them. You know, it was very grey. Even even in black and white, you got the, the impression of the grey, the fog. Well, you, you know, I mentioned in my little monologue start there that kids were playing football on partially cleared bomb sites. Three or four uh, years later, I was doing the same thing. No, I, I, and I, I, one I, of the bomb sites uh, was my mum's old house in, in what was uh, Campbell Street. The whole street had gone. You've hit the nail on the head there. My, my next point was, you know, all the derelict houses, the end terraces that had you know, fallen down. So reminiscent of actually Belfast in the 70s. And then we got an insight into the, the inside of these houses where the ceilings had fallen down, roofs letting in water, and you know, they couldn't use their electricity or any form of energy but if the rain came on. And as you rightly said, Jan, you know, we had twisted frames of cars and vans in the street with kids playing yeah. football around them. And, and you, you know, the, the, the people of the city related their stories and how they were feeling at the time. And, and one lady uh, related a lovely story about getting away into the countryside for a day out of, out of the city. And, the, you know, the first time she'd seen all the different colours of green and how wonderful, it, what, what a wonderful experience it was, you know, after the war and all these years to actually get away to fresh air and whatnot and it sort of made you feel a bit sad that and, and brought it home to you that those 10 to 15 years after the war just how difficult it was maybe for, for the people of the city it really you know it was a real effort for them what, what was the crack with Irish landlords because they seemed to get a very bad press from all the people on the streets in Liverpool is, is there a story behind that at all Jan? Not that I know of I do remember funnily enough though when I was a kid in a few the harder end I mean I, I was adopted but my adoptive family had 
friends and family and extended family and people who are actually only friends but you call them uncle and auntie and all that kind of stuff scattered all over Liverpool and round the bootle end we had Uncle Alf who lived down there and we used to go and see him occasionally and that was the first time I ever saw a card in somebody's window who ran a guest house which said no blacks no Irish no dogs so there was a straight (laughs) yeah exactly I asked my dad about it and he said you don't want to know about those people meaning the the owners my dad was uh, emphatically anti-racist so there was that strange there was that strange frisson there's always been a strange frisson between Liverpool and the Irish it's often been referred to as the capital of Ireland but it's not always been the most welcoming place even um, though the population is nearly two thirds Irish descent anyway and that's that's correct and also you know and I've said it in pods for Liverpool many times you know they say you know what's what's the attraction to the Irish in Liverpool it is geographically the closest English Premier League team if you will to Ireland and and the easiest accessible you know whether it be from Dublin uh, for Belfast and and I think Rosslare as well Uh, so so Liverpool is a very accessible city for for the Irish and I would imagine it's always been that way Uh, well it's it's always been the great jumping off spot for Ireland Canada America and all points west that was its big thing. It was only when British trade moved more European and less American yeah. that uh, suddenly all, all the business that was Liverpool's was now going to Hull, Tilbury for a while, but even Tilbury felt the pinch. And, of course, the age of containerisation killed Liverpool docks because why did you need to go to Liverpool anymore? Why go all the long way round when you can just come up the channel and go to the East Coast where it's nearer to Europe anyway? That sign, you know, no no blacks, no Irish, no uh, dogs yeah. could have also been hung out by the FA when they were hiring uh, uh, their next manager. The same kind of xenophobia seems to inform their manager selection these days as it did the average uh, boarding house owner. Uh, back then, Mike, if anything, it was even worse because the FA just assumed that British football was the best football in the world. There's still an element of that now. And, of course, when the Hungarians spanked England, what was it, 6-3 at Wembley, the shock and the horror that ran through the system was palpable. But, of course, shortly after that, as I said in the uh, opening monologue, as the European Cup came along, and the FA were determined that English clubs shouldn't have any part in these foreign entanglements. So myopic and, and xenophobic, it was untrue. Yeah. It's, it's, can I just come in, guys, because you know, what you're saying here, there was, there was an excerpt from the, this, this documentary that I watched, and, and, and they were focused around the docks area. And it seemed to be, and again, this is a very Irish thing as well, the, the, the affinity. You know, it's funny because I, I first visited Liverpool, I think it was 1974, 75 was the first time I was ever in Liverpool. And I always felt at home in it. Where, and, and even, you know, throughout my adult life, I've always felt at home in Liverpool as an English city, where maybe I don't feel that way in Manchester. I certainly don't feel that way in London. Quite. No, I know what you mean. Liverpool's, for Irish, quite different. Uh, and there's another thing on this, Jan, and I, and I just want to ask you this. I'm very curious. I couldn't find anything online about it. There's a lady came on and she was talking about the family sleeping five to a bed. And yeah. the night men would come around to check. And if you had any more than three in the bed, you were taken to court and fined five shillings. Uh, what was the night men? Almost all Liverpool City in, uh, inhabitants were council inhabitants in those days, social housing. The population was not very well educated. I mean, that's Britain generally. Working class people in those days did not go to university barring some complete freak in their personal circumstances and so there was a very paternalistic attitude towards the working class and almost like you see from the Tories now that we know what's best for you you know we, we can look after you you just do as you're told and it was that kind of approach uh, I never saw or heard 
of the Nightmen uh, at the time, but I heard about them in later years. This is uh, when we moved out to Kirby, because Kirby was absolutely full of people who'd come from the centre of the city who'd been bombed out, effectively. So we were overspill. And so you'd heard of people who lived in West Derby, like Mylot did, or in Kensington, all these places which really got largely bombed flat in great areas. And you heard these kind of stories from them, the, the tally man, where everything was bought on tallies, everything from milk to coal to whatever, and the tally man would come around and collect. Ken Dodd was apparently a tally man. Um, and the nightmen and oh, all sorts of sort of things. And you'd heard the little tricks they had. Like one, one of my favourites was a, a neighbour who told me that when they were living in West Derby, just a couple of streets away from where my mum lived, they used to make a very big show of sharpening the uh, carving knife on their kitchen step on a Sunday to try and kid the neighbours into thinking they had a joint. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But, but, now but that, back... you see, for me, a story like that finds the level. It tells you where they were. There was a, there was a sense of social pride still, but they were all piss poor. No, yeah. and that, you're talking about that social pride. It, it, it's yeah. very evident throughout this film. You know, they, these weren't the people on their knees or, or, or anything like that. You know, they're, they're very proud people. And, and yeah. you also got you also got the impression, Sean, that, that there was a, a big outflux of people from you know with with the docks there. People looked for work on the ship. Ended up you're seeing the world. Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. There was hardly a family in Liverpool. There was a, there was a point between World War Two. And say the end of the 60s, when there was hardly a family in Liverpool who didn't have somebody in the Navy or the Merchant Navy or, you know, associated bodies there too. And what that resulted in, what's interesting, is that the, uh, at uh, the outbreak of World War II, Liverpool's population was just short of a million. By the time I put in my appearance in Liverpool in uh, 1963, thereabouts, the population was down to under 700,000. It's around about 680,000. By the time I was 10, the population was just over 600,000. It really, people just buggered off. It was a city so much in decline in many ways, despite the rise of the football club, despite Merseybeat, the people just flock into the colonies, as it were. Australia were paying people to come and work there. New Zealand, slow out, the, out of the uh, blocks, as it were, but they got onto the same boat, and of course, Canada as well. And literally, for a moment, it looked like, you know, last one out, turn off the lights. I see so many correlations between Liverpool and Belfast, and I think it's the culture, it is the shipbuilding culture that, that marries the two together. And you can also see from this documentary, obviously, uh, we're going to talk about Liverpool Football Club. You can see yeah. how the re-emergence of the club, coupled with that, then the swinging 60s, we had the Beatles come along. This was a city that was crying out for something like this, and, and you can understand why it was embraced so heavily. You, you know, whenever yeah. you, when you sit back and watch this documentary, you understand the people were crying out for something to, to, to cling on to, to, to make their own. That's right, and they got it all in one big lump, effectively, because apart from the rise of Merseybeat, Liverpool Football Club came back from, well, Lang Wishing would be an understatement to under Shankly to being from second division to league champions within four years. That's remarkable. But at the same time, it is only fair to say that our blue neighbours were also, who hadn't been down the second division, were also back on the rise, slowly but surely. They were known as the Millionaires Club at the time. And I suppose, comparatively speaking, at the time they were. But if we drag ourselves back to 1958-59, Liverpool have just lost 2-1 to Worcester City in the FA Cup after the game had been abandoned at first, if I remember right, a dodgy pitch. They came back and they lost 2-1, and that was it for Phil Taylor. Finally, the board moved, uh, much, I honestly believe, reading about him, to Phil Taylor's relief. And this time, Bill Shankly said yes. 
So when Bill Shankly arrived at the club, I'll give you a readout of the team he found himself with. Some familiar names, I think you'll find, and maybe certainly a lot of unfamiliar names, but a couple of surprises in there too. So here we go. The goalkeepers were Doug Rudham and Tommy Younger. Defenders, Jerry Byrne, John Molyneux, Ronnie Moran, Jeff Twentyman and Dick White. Midfielders, Alan Accourt, Bobby Campbell, James Harrower, Billy Liddle, Fred Morris, Johnny Morrissey, who later, of course, went to Everton, Johnny Wheeler, Barry Wilkinson, and the forwards, Alan Arnell, Alan Banks, Lewis Bimpson, Jimmy Melia, and Bobby Murdoch. Looking back through that lot, we can see there's a small, hard core who Shankly would keep on and who would become an essential part of his first team. But when he was appointed, one of the first things he did, apart from the installation of new toilets, which he called the press in to come and have a look at, to say, look at the progress we're making at the club, is he actually got rid of 24 of these players. And, and, signed, a he, and signed a certain Roger Hunt as well. Although it was a no, no, just, Roger Hunt was already there as a, as a reserve. He joined he, July, what, he fi- J- July 58, I thought he, he, he had arrived. Yeah, he did, July 58. Shankly didn't arrive till uh, 59. Oh, right, my exactly. error. Edit, edit. No, that's okay. No, it's 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 okay to keep these things in because we all. I, mean, I dare say some of the things that we've already said, people will come back and take us up on and say, "Well, I've heard differently," which is fair enough because they may well be right or they may well be wrong, and we've corrected them. We don't know yet. I think Roger Hunt w- w- was with us two years before he made his debut, or two seasons, a season and a half, anyway, until he made his debut. Would that be correct? Well, because we know that um, Shankly was a very hands-on sort of coach. I mean, he was the definition of the tracksuit manager, really. He went and had a look at who they'd got. And Roger Hunt was one of those that he found knocking around the club that made him decide that uh, he could have the call he wanted. And he, then he would bombard the directors with requests for transfers. So he got rid of 24 players. He cleared out a small storage room and turned it into a place where he could actually meet with the coaches he decided to keep on. He looked at the staff who were on the team. He let some of them go. And he kept on some of the old staff, including key people such as the recently or only fairly recently retired Bob Paisley. Uh, Reuben Bennett and Joe Fagan and they formed in this little cubby hole that had been hollowed out for them where the boots were to be kept the infamous boot room and that's where the birth if you like of the modern day Liverpool Football Club came about he also of course then went to the directors as I say slapped them for some money threatening to resign if they didn't do his bidding they refused him to go back to his old club, Huddersfield, and get Dennis Law, who went off, as Dennis pronounces it, to Torino before joining Manchester United. But, guys, who did he go and get? Oh, it's all gone quiet over there. I don't know. Uh, don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I, yeah. I should know. I should know. <laughs> well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a clue. And I'll, I'll just to show that you're... Yes. yes. All right. <laughs> well, right. We'll cut that as an edit. And so, so who did he go and get? Dave. Ian St. John. That's right. Ian St. John was his his chosen forward at the time. He'd seen Ian St. John playing uh, in Scotland and thought this was exactly the tough little bugger I need up front in my my team. And then he went back to Scotland and bought his Colossus, who was to be his captain, which, of course, was Ron Yates. He kept hold of Jerry Byrne. He kept hold of Ronnie Moran. He kept hold of Jimmy Melia. And he started to build around these teams with people who plucked from the reserves, including Roger Hunt, and some of the others who were either knocking around the club or shortly to be knocking around the club, such as Tommy Lawrence. Of course, Bill Fennell was his new keeper for a while. And, of course, Billy Little's time was coming to an end. 
he kept him on. He still played Billy Little a year or so. But who was it who eventually replaced Billy Little? I wonder if anybody knows this, because this is a lineage which takes you right up to our glory days. And Roy Evans, no? No, Ian Callaghan. Oh. A very young Ian Callaghan, who actually came on in place of Little when Little got an injury and was basically, that was it for, for Billy, really. He came on and he was it was so good in his debut, he was actually applauded off the pitch by his teammates. Is that so? Those, those were the days. <laughs> Politeness all round. So that was the first team that he dealt with. By the following year, the team had changed a little bit. The two keepers were still there as he was, hadn't managed to get his Bill Fennell or Tommy Lawrence ready yet. But now, listen to this for a changed squad. Some of the names you'll find the same, but you might find a few ads in there which sound familiar. So, goalkeepers the same, Doug Rudham and Bert Slater. Defenders, Jerry Byrne, Alan Jones, John Molyneux, Ronnie Moran, John Nicholson, Jeff Twentyman, Dick White. Midfielders, Alan Accord, Reginald Bloor, Ian Callaghan, Bobby Campbell, Jimmy Harrower, Tommy Leishman, Billy Littlestill, Jimmy Melia, Fred Morris, Johnny Morrissey, Johnny Wheeler, and Barry Wilkinson. Forwards, Alan Arnell, Alan Banks, Louis Bimson, Willie Carlin, Dave Hickson, Roger Hunt, Bobby Murdoch. Now you'll notice that's a much bigger squad than the first one. So Shankly came into this club with ideas. He knew what he wanted to do. We're, we're all absolutely familiar with that uh, famous quote, I wanted to build Liverpool into a fortress and build them up and up. But this was it from day zero. This was it from the very start. And the first order of business, of course, was to get out of the old second division. That first season, they came very close, right? They did. They came very close for the next two or three seasons until they eventually they cracked it. By that time, of course, the team had changed again. So, what do you think about the, those early days, guys, when he came in and saw this mess, this d- half-dilapidated stadium? I think, as Mike called them there before we got started, the parsimonious directors. Well, that's right. Yeah. Well, well what, what I thought was so interesting about what I understood Shankly to have inherited was a number of different things. First of all, I think what's what I only just recently learned is that Everton went down in 1950. I think it's the last time Everton was in the in the second division, but they had gone down in 50-51. And then we go down in 54. Everton, I think, uh, was back up by that point. But it was it was real uh, what we call dog days on Merseyside in the in that that early 50s period. And then there, you know, there was George Kay, of course, had been the manager until 51. And they brought in a guy and... Uh, of course, George Kay won the league just after exactly. the war. So we, we looked like we were on the up again for a few minutes there. Exactly. And, and there, uh, in fact, in, I think, 50 or 51, we came very close to winning the double. Uh, we finished high yes. up the league and lost in the FA Cup final. And, in fact, yeah. I was reading somewhere that that FA Cup final was one of the first, if not the first, to be telecast uh, on to be broadcast on television. And yeah. they reckon, even though there weren't, there were only about three hundred thousand sets in the UK at the time, that it was watched by over a million people. So you know, the the club was in the running. George K starts to get sick. He can't handle it. Uh, can't handle the job. He'd done a great job, but apparently he was close to his wit's end. And we go down in '54. And uh, under Don Welsh. Under Don Welsh. And what's yeah. interesting is in 51, the, the, the club appoint Don Welsh 
who had been at Charlton, had been a, been a player, who had apparently played for us during the war when, I guess, you know, depending on, depending on where you were stationed, you'd end up signing on or playing with a club. So he played for Liverpool and he scored 42 goals and 41 appearances, which... Not a bad record. Yeah. We, we could do well with a center forward like that. <laughs> but I, I came, there's a great book that's written by John Williams uh, and it's called Red Men and, and it's a biography of Liverpool Football Club. And it, Jan, if you'll just indulge me, I'm, I'm going to read a segment. Uh, I'll indulge away. Go for it, Mike. Because they talk about Don Welsh, who had been at Charlton, been a manager for Brighton and Hove Albion in the old uh, third division south, and uh, as I said, had played sort of temporarily for us. And here's what went into his hiring. The Liverpool board knew and trusted him. He was also young enough, just 40, to offer a good link between the boardroom and the Liverpool players. And he was seen as something of a tracksuit modernizer, but not one who was too headstrong or with too many of his own ideas. And best for all those cautious, parsimonious Liverpool directors, he was cheap. And then to, to give you a flavor for the extent to which, and, and Shankly encounters this, and uh, in fact, as I think is well documented in various places, but also in David Peace's book about fictional or historical fiction, uh, Red or Dead, about Shankly. You know, the board was very involved in the day-to-day and week-to-week and player selection in the club. So to give you a sense of this, the thinking inside Anfield was that Welsh could learn how to manage a top football club by relying on the wisdom and experience of the Liverpool board. And as the Liverpool Echo supportively put it, and apparently this wasn't ironic, quote, if two heads are better than one, the nine directors and a manager are better still. So that gives you a sense of the kind of guy who they hire in 51 and who promptly within two to three seasons takes a club that was close to winning the double down into the second division and then he's of course replaced by Phil Taylor down there he gets his walking papers and they kind of languish around with Phil under Phil Taylor but I find it so interesting because Shankly really kind of heralds a, a change uh, certainly at our club but in fact this business of the board being involved in the selection of teams and so on wasn't uncommon uh, at the time uh, I don't know if it was more the rule than the exception but apparently Liverpool we were the board at this point was made up of all local businessmen and uh, they thought they knew uh, as as good or better than the manager the manager should take the team out for training and they were also notoriously cheap. They would leak stories to the newspapers that linked us to big name players and that were in the running. We'd go in, our board directors would talk to the other team's board directors and say, what's the least, what's your lowest price uh, for this player? And then they'd come in at about 15% below that and of course walk away, but they'd leak to the papers that we were in deep negotiations uh, with this player or that player, who of course, that would of course would keep the fans interested, which I'd have to say, is eerily familiar to present day. Even though it, it doesn't sit note for note, there are eerie parallels from a quarter, you know, half a century ago now, over half a century ago, that transfer onto the modern game, not just at Liverpool, but all sorts of clubs. People hearing what Mike said will take some of that and transfer it. Of course, the big difference, which Shankly was in the forefront of, along with Jock Steen and uh, Matt Busby, was that the modern managers were no longer happy Bill Nicholson was another one, to have the directors pick the team. I mean, when Matt Busby, I remember him talking about this in an interview, whoa, way back when, saying that when he first arrived at Manchester United, he was told basically, no, listen, son, you know, you train the players, you coach them, we'll pick the team. And he said, you won't, or I'll walk away. And they tried to call his bluff for a couple of weeks, but he stuck to his guns. 
And so he was one of the first. Shankly, when he arrived at uh, Liverpool, had had the same freedom at Huddersfield and he was not going to take anything less at Liverpool. And before he signed on to, the, on to take the job, that was one of the main conditions, is that the directors have nothing to do with the football side. So the lines were being drawn for that half a century ago. And I don't think modern fans, not many of them anyway, have any real clue just how much control on everything from on a day-to-day coaching whatever level that the directors used to get involved in. Yeah, it was real amateur hour. Oh, it was. Things that always frustrates me on Twitter is when people talk about uh, club owners, be they FSG or whoever they are, they say, no, oh, but what we really need is football men running the club. No football men have ever run any big club in in my memory. <laughs> Yeah, well I, don't, I don't think it's, it doesn't sit very well in, in the modern game now to have football men in charge of clubs when you consider the marketing, whenever you consider all the bits and pieces. They're, they're global about, entities now. They're exactly. almost, multi, almost multi-core, you know, exactly, sort of thing. Exactly. But, and, and it but, even, but even in the old days, the guys who run Liverpool and Everton were the people who run Littlewoods and Vernon's pools and things like this. They weren't football men, unless you counted doing the pools as being a football man. Well, that's, no, uh, that's actually... Manchester United were run by a family of butchers. And, and that's what I find so interesting. You know, people have such short memories when they talk about our club to say, oh, well, you know, City... I mean, let's make no mistake. Shankly, Paisley, Kenny, Joe Fagan, th- there was a dynastic guys. quality yeah. uh, to the, and there was a genius behind what they did. But there was no small amount of money compared to other clubs. And so when we poo-poo what's happening elsewhere at the Chelsea's and the Man Cities, you know, because they're rich yeah. and rich, we had one of the richest, literally, pools of money available in the in the British game because, we, because of we Liverpool. Did. Well, we, we would regularly, during the 70s and the 80s, either break the British transfer record or regularly bump up against whatever it was at the time some clubs would like Nottingham Forest they'd pay almost a million pounds for Trevor Francis but they didn't do it every week whereas we tended to do that kind of thing maybe once or twice a season of course there was no windows in those days you could buy players whenever you fancied except for one sort of rather strange March deadline but it is a thing is this idea that clubs were once run by football men they never were they never were what you hoped for was what Liverpool had in that great period of success, was, which was a very sympathetic and empathic chairman in John Smith, a man who at least, if he didn't exactly understand football, he was certainly a fan of it and certainly knew when to put his oar in and keep his oar out. So it was good, good sound management, but he wasn't a football man and nobody who's ever run a big club, certainly in Britain, has ever been a football man. No, that's, that, no. that's, that's right. Dave, you were going to say something. Sorry. No, it's, it's a question I want to ask, Jan. You, you, you know, we, we hear today, and it's, it's a frustration of mine, uh, you know, the old adage, the Liverpool way. Um, and, I, <laughs> and, and, I, and I just want to ask, Jan, was it around this time, this period from 58, 59 onwards, that that, that, that terminology started to come into play? You, you know, I, I... Have sore, aching muscles impacted you today? Volterol Back and Muscle Pain Relief Gel is scientifically proven to help relieve pain, reduce inflammation and restore movement. The anti-inflammatory ingredient gets to work where it hurts. Give it a try. What have you got to lose? Well, those sore muscles, I guess. Volterol Back and Muscle Pain Relief 1.16% Gel contains diclofenac diethylammonium. Always read the label. At Lloyds Bank, we know that money is a concern for a lot of people during this time. 
I'm really worried about the business. I'm worrying about you. And I, th I think that's changing me. And I'm worried that somewhere along the line, you might not love me anymore. Oh, that's not true. Whatever's playing on your mind at the moment, Lloyds Bank, in partnership with Mental Health UK, can offer you support and advice. Visit lloydsbank.com slash mental health. I remember having, you know, conversations with guys maybe 10 years younger than me, you know, about 10 years back in time. And I, and send, I remember saying to them, they used to talk about the Liverpool way, the Liverpool way. That, it's, it's, all, it's all bollocks today because today is all about, as you say, it's all multinational. It's all marketing. Yeah. It's globalization of, of, of the game. The Liverpool way can't exist in today's world. Uh, I'd like to hear your views on that. I think there was certainly the terminology didn't exist then, but with the arrival of Shankly and after, say, a year, 18 months of his tenure, the philosophy of what was to become the Liverpool way was certainly there to be seen for those who wanted to look. And it was out of Shankly, the boot room philosophy and all those things that came with it and being bigger and better and building a fortress and the connection with the fans. Shankly had a connection with the fans that I can't think easily of any other manager who had it so long and so deep uh, as Shankly did. I mean, he was worshipped by the fans. Not just our fans, even Everton fans liked him. Now, uh, was... when, he, when he died, there were as many blue shirts and blue scarves along the funeral route as there were red ones. And we have to be honest and hold our hands up to the blue colleagues across the park and say, no, they've, despite the various rivalries we've had over the years, when it came to the crunch, we both tended to sing from the similar song sheet. And they respected him just like the Liverpool fans. They would mock, but they respected Harry Catrick in his day, who was a great Everton manager. But the Liverpool way certainly started with Shankly, although it wasn't until the mid-60s, really, that it, you ever, I ever heard a concept of the Liverpool way mentioned amongst the fans and it wasn't even then it wasn't formulated I'd love to know where the very first terminology was probably in a program somewhere when they somebody must have written and this is the Liverpool way yeah the way we I, do I, things. I, I, and also you know you're talking about Paisley you're talking about uh, Shankly these these guys were an awful lot more humble and, and, they were. and mild-mannered men they were gentlemen by comparison maybe that's been a bit harsh in some man of the managers today but certainly with, with the press and so on and, and the press obligations now we look at what we have at the moment and it's just head and hands most of the time you know you wouldn't have got that from the, these guys you know well, when, well, when, when, it's a funny thing it's a funny thing dave is that all of us every liverpool fan over the age of 18 knows at least one shankly quote whatever it is I but maybe even more than one <laughs> maybe maybe even, maybe even more than one but at the same time if they go online and try and find shankly quotes they'll find maybe a dozen Maybe maybe a bit more than that, maybe a bit less than that, but about a dozen. And once they've read them, they'll say, oh, yes, I, I, I generally remember them. But what you have to remember is Shankly was manager of Liverpool for 15 years. At a time when he was manager, there was no televised football. If you didn't get the pink echo or go the game, all you relied on was chats in the pub or chat with your mates at school as to what happened. So managers were not in the press or on telly every five minutes. They were never on telly. They were rarely in the press. And so they weren't cult personalities in themselves. Shankly and Busby were amongst the first cult managers, if you like. And not in the same way that, say, uh, Mourinho is a cult figure today or Ferguson was a cult figure, where then you, you can't go into any branch of the media without seeing something about them somewhere. Not Ferguson now, but in his, in his day. Shankly was not like that. In fact, I would say the first real cult manager 
was probably Brian Clough. Yeah, that's a good, around that, 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 that era. Around that yeah, era, he yeah. was the first big sort of mouthpiece manager, you know, a manager with because, strong opinions. Because and, then there was plenty of telly. Yeah. That made a big difference, telly and radio coverage. Uh, and, and you mentioned also that the affinity that, that Shankly had with the fans. But what you have to remember, and, and you watch this documentary, I go back to this documentary I watched, if you watch that, and then you realise the city that he came into. And, and the, they're very endearing people that, that you see there. And you can imagine Bill Shankly. He lived amongst the people. It was before the days of these oh, yeah. millionaires. He lived well, amongst his, the people. His house practically backed onto the Everton training ground. So that, that remark he made about if Everton were playing at the bottom of my garden, I'd pull the curtains, wasn't actually far from the truth. No, but, <laughs> he, but, he lived in an ordinary semi. Uh-huh. And, and also players were much more accessible. You, you know, I, oh, yes. I, I, I base it today. It's, it's like modern day rugby. It, today you know the players are totally accessible there's no airs and graces about them football has become this it, it, it's, it's almost like a bubble the players exist yeah. in a bubble so they're not living real lives they're not interacting with with the real people on the streets uh, and, and i think if you look back at this period of time of, of 1958 that we're in there was very much a big community connection with the club in the absence of the multimedia connection it, it had yeah. to be c- connection and that's where when shankley's era started to take off the people of the city just it was it was it was like a beacon for them through, through the yes. darkness of what had happened in the wars and whatnot. And I can it, it's it totally g- it educational. Gave them, it gave them something to look at and be proud of. Exactly. That exactly. So, it gave them something that was theirs that wasn't grubby. It wasn't second hand. It was theirs. It was fresh. It was new, and it was important. That's why both the music and the football were so very vitally important to Liverpool in the 60s. And it also gave intertwined. a sense of identity. And they intertwined, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always the big question about, you know, whether the Beatles were big football fans. Big football fans, probably the biggest of, of them was Lennon, who was a Liverpool fan. McCartney's was quietly a Liverpool fan, although his brother was an Everton fan. Ringo was a quiet Liverpool fan. And George was the only blue nose in amongst them. At that time, in Liverpool itself, the, the fanship between the two clubs was fairly evenly split. Uh, but Brian Epstein said to the lads, for God's sake, this is when they were still mostly a Liverpool phenomenon when he, in their early days, for God's sake, don't say which football club you support because you'll alienate the other lot. And so they never did. <laughs> and to funny. this day, and to this day, McCartney still says, well, you know, I'd like see both win, you know. But at the same time, it didn't stop him at one concert uh, leading a chant of Dalgleish, which rather gave the game away. And also, well, the, 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 the cop very famously sang Beatles songs during the 60s as well. It was, they it was did. Very, very commonplace thing that, that, that uh, the Beatles songs were sung in the terraces. And of course, on the Sgt. Pepper album cover, there's only one footballer, and he's a Liverpool footballer, which is Albert Stubbins. <laughs> That's great. So, but you know, as when you when you look at it in, in the historical perspective of what the city was up against, what Shankly was up against when he takes uh, when he takes charge, it is phenomenal what he was able to to turn around and in create out of the manager's role. So not just a vision of the club, but create out of his he becomes the focal point really for what the for what the club is doing. Not out of any megalomania, although there, I'm sure there was a lot of ambition and ego there, but because he had a very clear plan for how things should happen. And that Exactly. I think, I think that the the interesting thing about the, the Liverpool way is I think that is a phenomenon that followed him. I think that yes. was more of a phenomenon of the Paisley, of the Paisley, you know, Fagan, Dalgleish era, and even propagated by some of the players uh, from that later period, because it was about, it was a way of building on Bill's shoulders and on his legacy without it just being about him, but being about exactly. something bigger than him. 
I, I was actually going to say when we were discussing that earlier, really, the Liverpool way, as most people think of it, was really because of the lineage from the boot room. It was exactly. from that sort of dynasty. That was what caused the Liverpool way. You couldn't really say it just when Shankly was in place. It, it was Shankly was obviously the rock on which it was built, but it was what came after him as much as anything. And and, and you know the the challenge there is uh, as as we've come through more recent times. Uh, as much as Bill Shankly's memory is a is so such a the bedrock of the club that we have today, it can be an albatross for any incoming manager, particularly those oh, yeah. who have uh, aspirations to emulate him. I'm not thinking exactly. of anyone specifically, of course, but uh, you know the, the and the speed with which people maybe even draw parallels between um, more recent inhabitants of the job and Bill Shankly, you know, don't do them any favors. Uh, also, because I think the lesson from the Shankly period and where where they made a step change was, if you look beyond a visionary individual, is he forced he forced a having a real plan, b decisions being made at the right level uh, of the organization and and getting the resources to the people who make decisions who are who are in the best position to make decisions they made their share of mistakes uh yeah. in terms of transfers but um they they did so kind of in an informed way if that's a way of uh, of, of thinking yeah. of, uh, well, what 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 shankly did with his boot room is he had his lieutenants and he absolutely trusted them he plucked uh, Jeff Twentyman. He plucked him to be his chief scout. And from that moment on, Twentyman never looked back because he was... I mean, there's, there's actually been uh, a, at least one book written about him. He was probably the most successful scout in English football history. He he could dig them out of nowhere, whether it be Emlyn Hughes from Blackpool or Kevin Keegan from Scunthorpe or Ray Clement slightly earlier from Scunthorpe. He He was... He was something else. So he was constantly building, and he knew he couldn't do it all on his own. He was he, he came across as a sort of a, a bluff egotist when being interviewed, but that was show. Uh, he was really a very practical man, and he knew he couldn't do it all himself. He checked every detail of what what did get done, but he trusted his men to get on with their jobs, and they did them very, very well, and they trusted him. So it was it was a very good symbiotic relationship that went on. So and guys, back, shall we? Oh, sorry, Dave, go on. No, Come I just in. want to say, just, just want before you close on it. Uh, you, you know, if you take the scouting back then, okay, you know, transfers were a completely different world. You know, the, into modern football, we talk about the fifty percent success rate of your signings. You know, fifty percent will be duds. Fifty percent might do you. It, it wasn't like that back then, John. Anybody no. we bought, most of the time, came through as a first team player and did very well for us. Well, it can look like that in hindsight. It's not strictly true. Shankly bought his share of duffers. He bought his share of people who looked good and they got moved on anyway because they didn't suit the team. Tony Hately being an obvious example, who was a hundred and, uh, well, no, I think it was a hundred thousand, might have been a hundred and ten thousand pound man. He scored well in his first season, but the problem was to do well, we had to play to his strengths, which limited the team. And it didn't, didn't to use a commonly used phrase today, it didn't suit Shankly's philosophy of a whole team approach. So a, bit like ben Tech, a bit like Ben Teggy today, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so back to he, he also he also <laughs> bought my favourite player in Liverpool history, and I, I say this uh, <laughs> slightly pejoratively, uh, Peter Wall, who I completely mystified me. I, I couldn't see what the guy was good for. One of my friends in America knows him and, and sees him occasionally. I hope hopefully he hasn't mentioned uh, my disappointment with him, but uh, he's apparently he's a very nice guy. But as a footballer, he drove me nuts. But there were lots of lots of players in the sixties era who came and went 
the older, older of us will remember say, oh yeah, he was quite good. It was like Bobby Graham, trying to think of various other ones. And we bought a, a lad from Sheffield Wednesday, whose name escapes me, who was going to be the biggest thing, and he just disappeared. It just didn't happen for him. So there were transfer mistakes then. Of course, back then, transfer mistakes weren't done on 30-odd million quid. They were done on tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 at a push. Well, they were also not done in a compressed time frame where everyone was looking at what everyone else was doing. Instead, they were done almost almost, you know, ad hoc, right? So you, you quickly forgot who was bought and who was sold. And Well, look, the common approach, uh, as much as Shankly did absolutely trust Jeff Twentyman, Twentyman would come back and say, boss, I've seen this guy you know, uh, plays for Grimsby whatever, you know, I think he could do a job for us. That was that was apparently the common term in the boot room. I think he could do a job for us. Shankly would go and have a look himself. Or if he couldn't make it for some reason, which was very rare, Paisley would go and have a look, or Fagan would go and have a look. And they'd watch a player two, three, four, maybe a dozen times on the quiet because there was no TV to report, oh, and there's somebody from Liverpool in the stands tonight. The first thing we'd know about it was an announcement in the Echo that uh, so-and-so was signed, you know, uh, Bobby Graham was signed for Liverpool. And that's it. You wouldn't often know the fee. Uh, that might no. come out later if it was particularly high or pushing the British record. But otherwise, yeah, you didn't really know. That player might then disappear into the Central League for a year or two. And then suddenly they get eased into the team and people who'd forgotten we'd bought him in the first place say, ooh, who's this guy? He looks good. Or, ooh, this guy? I don't fancy him much. And so on and so forth. And that's the way it generally went. There was less spotlight on transfers because, A, there was no window. So it wasn't all hyped by Sky Sports News into a little corner, you know, twice a year. It was a rolling process. I, I, I liked it better. Uh, it has its pros and cons. But I don't think what the window was supposed to do, which was stop teams loading themselves with players, I don't think that's made any difference. They just load themselves twice a year instead of all year. So it's not spread evenly, if you like. So we we made mistakes. We've always made mistakes. Every club makes mistakes in the transfer market. Uh, it just then they were less spotlighted and they you were know, less expensive in relative terms. There, you you were talking about how the boot room went around uh, assessing uh, as, assessing top uh, potential. Yeah, they'd have they'd, have, they'd all get together and, and have a conference story. Process. That's right. Well, and there's a great story that uh, uh, Bruce Grobelar tells about being when he was playing at Crew. I think he'd been playing in the Vancouver for the Vancouver Whitecaps for. Uh, Really well. to, that's right. We bought him. And he had to go on loan at Crew to get a work permit. That's right. And so he <laughs> yeah. uh, he ends up playing there and sees Bob Paisley show up. Uh, he's there for the warm up. Uh, uh, they spend you know 15 minutes uh, of the warm up before a match, and Paisley walks out after the warm up and he says, "I've seen what I need to see." Uh, you know, there was just a there was a real method to their madness. And the challenge, of course, is how do you keep that alive, or how do you reignite a something similar? And that that's probably the challenge that we face today as a club. How do we build on that? Well, th th this, this is a uh, th this taps in on what we were talking about slightly earlier about football men running a club. It's not at the directors or the owners' stage. It's these people, people like Bob Paisley, people like Ruben Bennett, people like Jeff Twentyman. They were real football people. I mean, Bob Paisley as, as a, our physio was practically legendary. I mean, all the players who worked when he was at the club when he was uh, the physio would say, you only had to walk in the room, take three or four steps and Bob could tell you what was wrong with you just okay. by the way you walked in. He, said, he just spotted it. He'd say, your cruciate's going. I want to have a look at that. 
and that that's the difference it's it's they are where the football men really count not the people who are holding the purse strings or not the people who are sorting out the sponsorships or all that kind of stuff or who are building a stand or who print the programs whatever it is the people who are directly involved with the team need to be at their very very best and that might be where our issue is today john can you ever see that's a different debate Can you ever can you ever see a time in in the modern game where 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 a boot room exists again? Because in my thinking, I just can never see a manager or a management team getting that long to succeed and, and to build that kind of uh, dynasty, if you will. I, I just don't ever see it happening again at the top uh, ends of football. Oh, a dynasty? I mean, it's not impossible. It would depend on the club, and it would depend on the people who ran the club, and it would depend on the people who were the manager and the team under the manager. So it, it's possible if all those things gel in the right place. You could say, up to a point, that um, Klopp's Dortmund has been a bit like that, because, of course, Klopp built the club up when it was languishing a bit again himself, brought it to the top of the tree as much as you can in a challenge with Bayern Munich. And, of course, when Klopp went, his deputy took over, and the people who were under the deputy moved up a stage. So there's a dynasty, it's still small, it's only, you know, once removed, but there's a dynasty possibly growing there. It takes the right mindset from top to bottom to do that, and the right people. I think generally today that the money pressures of the game and the, the, the if you're a, a big club, the demand for success is so high and so dependent on your well-being. Because if you slip from the top table, it's bloody difficult to get back up there again. That nobody is necessarily easily willing to take the chance on building a dynasty. I mean, if there was a chance in the modern English game for one two be built it was probably under ferguson and that's a whole other argument because there are lots of people who say he didn't want one he was too much for one man band in terms of this is about me but i don't know i don't know the man maybe there's a lot of propaganda no doubt talked about him one way or the other so getting at the truth we'll probably never know we just have to see but klopp i think uh, and Borussia Dortmund have at least started that process. Whether it gets killed in infancy, we can only wait and see. Yeah, I, I think there's too much money in the British game for yeah. for that. Well, Bayern Munich have actually been warning about that today, saying there'll be a transfer, in their words, a transfer tsunami because of the money that's floating around the English game. Right, because I think that, that that's already having an effect. We're seeing it this year with Liverpool, Man United, and uh, Arsenal all on seven points, and and Chelsea behind us by a further three. It tells you that the the mid-table clubs have upped their games. So increasingly, there are no easy there are no easy games. Well, uh, well this is the thing, you see, Mike. I mean, because of the money in the game and, the, and with the new TV deals and the focus that goes on the Premier League around the world, clubs who would normally their record spend would be four or five million on a player, maybe six if you were lucky. I've gone out this summer, like Stoke City, and bought uh, Shakiri and th- that sort of thing. If you look around the clubs, all all the smaller clubs have all gone out and spent 15, maybe 20 million on a player. It's quite remarkable. And so the money has upped their game for them. It's enabled them to say, well, you know, we can buy now. Now we can get someone. And people are looking shocked. What? Shaqiri's gone to Stoke. Stoke, okay, they're still, technically speaking, a small club, but they're not a poor club anymore. The money in in their TV deals has made sure of that. And Stoke City, even though their typical place is somewhere directly in the mid-table, sort of 10th, 11th, 12th sort of place, financially... And structurally, they're probably in a better place than, I don't know, Schalke. That's right. Because they have that kind of money. And, of course, the English ticket prices are far far higher generally than most of the rest of Europe. 
you know, it's, it's a sad one, really. Um, you, when, when you see, um, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, Jan, Europe, you know, Central European journalists just laughing openly on Twitter about the English game and how much money's being bandied about in it. And, and they're, 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 you know, their jaws are on the floor. They're, they're speechless because, you know, in, in England, France, uh, or sorry, in France and Germany, the, the, the bigger leagues and, and certainly the Dutch league, it's all about, you know, buying cheap, developing players. England's all about going, you know, just that big amount of money. You want the best players. And the problem is then whenever you come to move them on, um, you know, you, you look like a, a Di Maria at United last year. It didn't work out for him. Then that, that passes a, uh, onto a club like PSG who have to then fork out the big wages that, that Di Maria's been on and, and a big transfer fee to, yeah. because, because United have initially paid that. And it just throws the whole world of football askew, in my opinion. Well, here's the funny thing. Uh, Di Maria, whatever you think of him as a player, you know, uh, it's up to the individual to decide what they think of him. He was at Manchester United for a year. He cost them £59 million. They sold him for, what was it, 46, 45 46, million? 40, yeah, 46. Yeah, £46 million. So he's cost them, Manchester United, for that one year, which he, he admittedly, they say and he says, he didn't have a good time there. So he's cost them their £13, £14 million outright in the transfer fee and almost the same again in his wages for one year. Not to mention his relocation funds and everything else. So for one year, they had the use of a player and it cost them a better part of 25, 26 million for one year. It's mind blowing. It is. So in effect, they got no return on that 25 million. That's the, that's the equivalent of another club paying £25 million for a player, not using him, and then giving him away at the end of the year. Mario that's Paul crackers. <laughs> well, well <laughs> not going there. <laughs> Even though he's, he scored within three minutes of his debut no, no, and made, made two other goals. <laughs> it's, it's not Brandon's fault at all, sure. I haven't said no. <laughs> yeah, we'll stay away from that one for now. Okay, guys, so we've covered the, the sort of task that Shankly had in front of him, how he got rid of 24 players and started feeding his own ones in, arguing, well, arguing is probably an understatement, threatening to resign every few minutes with the board uh, until they gave him what he wanted. Now, he had a couple of virulent backers on the board who would override the others and say, we have to get Mr Shankly what he's asked for. If we're serious about this team getting back into the first division and maybe winning things, because Shankly was unabashed. He said, I want to get in the first division. I want to win the title. I want to win this team, the FA Cup, for the first time. And and then there's other plans beyond that with sort of not being specific but of course we know in hindsight he meant Europe and so he eventually got the club's backing. Now, in his first season, that team of patchwork names, some of which we recognised, others of which most people wouldn't have a clue about, they came fourth. In the second year, they got, they came third. They improved by one. Didn't do too well in either of the cup rounds, but that wasn't the main focus. The main focus was to get back in the first division. And in 1961-62, gold dust. Now, here's the 1961-62 team. For anybody who remembers the other ones, see how much more familiar some of this sounds. In gold, Jim Fennell has now turned up. He would later, of course, go on to Arsenal and be their goalkeeper until Bob Wilson took over from him. The other backup keeper now was Bert Slater. He'd been relegated to backup. Defenders, a few more familiar names coming up now. Jerry Byrne, Phil Ferns, Alan Jones, Johnny Molyneux, Ronnie Moran, Dick White, Ron Yates. Midfielders, Alan Accourt, Ian Callaghan, Tommy Leishman, Kevin Lewis, Jimmy Melia, Gordon Milne, Johnny Morrissey. Forwards, Gordon Wallace, Johnny Wheeler, Alf Arrowsmith, Willie Carlin, Bobby Graham, bing, as I mentioned before, Roger Hunt, Ian St. John. 
Now, that sounds far more like the, the Liverpool side that people first know of in the modern era. And that was the year they went up. They were champions. Even so, once they'd gone up, several of that team were culled and new boys brought in. And that's where I think maybe, guys, after a few comments, we'll probably leave it for this pod. That's, just, that's great. Go ahead, Dave. Can I just ask you one question, Sean? Because yes, sure. it, would be, it would be my opinion at, at, around that time, you know, while we were coming out of the second division, the step up wasn't as great uh, from, from the second to the first division as it would be today from the championship to the Premier League. Would you agree on that? It just depends how you define your terms. Well, you know, the level of football I'm thinking about being played. Well, cer- cer- certainly, you know, I, let, I started... Let me, what- let me give you a few facts then, and you can decide on the basis of that. Our, cool. top, score, our top scorer that year, unsurprisingly, was Roger Hunt, who scored 41 goals in the league. Right, so that's worth thinking about to start with. Of course, in those days, the league itself consisted of 42 games, and there was two points per game, not three points a game, which, of course, most people now have grown up with. Liverpool were champions with 62. Runners-up, who came up with them, were uh, Leighton Orient, who were quite a reasonable force back then. Here's the teams. going. I'll go down uh, and pick out a few select names in no particular order, but these were other teams that were in that second division at the same time. Sunderland, Southampton... Stoke City, Huddersfield Town, Newcastle United, Middlesbrough, Leeds United, Norwich City, Derby County, uh, Luton. See anybody else there that sounds overly familiar? Certainly a lot of yeah, teams probably from, the, from the Premier League era. Yeah, exactly. Well, you can see, certainly, that a lot of these teams came up in our wake very, very quickly. Leeds United, this, this is the team that Don Revy still hadn't actually sorted out yet. And uh, they finished 19th. But they still had the core of what became Revy's team already playing for them. Newcastle United, of course, they were still, had been, until the mid-50s themselves, a reasonable force. But they were on a bit of a skid for a while. But they still had some very good players. Uh, Sunderland... Len Ashurst, I remember playing for them in those days, amongst others. And, of course, they were quite a force. They were first division team, not Premier League as it was then, but first division team for most of the 60s. So a lot of these teams came up and stayed up. Southampton, of course, they came up. And it wasn't until, what, the 80s that they began to yo-yo up and down for a while. They were quite a, a hard set. And they would regularly finish top five at one point. So there's, And Derby County, of course, became champions under Brian Clough. So it, I'm not. I don't know, Dave. I, I'm not sure. I would say it was easier back then. No. Well, certainly less pressured in terms of money and coverage. No, I'm talking about the actual step up. You know, the the, the, the level of football being played in the first division as opposed to the second. In my opinion, because I know from the 70s, the two leagues were pretty close. It was, you know, it wasn't a huge gap in, in foot, footballing skills and, and and footballing ability between those t- uh, the two leagues, like like exists today. Well, let's put it this way. Um, Liverpool went from cup finalists and nearly winning the league, as Mike said earlier, in 1950, with Bob Paisley actually scoring the winner in the semi-final. Didn't get picked for the final. But they went from that to being relegated in 53-54. Shankly took over in 59, and it took another three years to get Liverpool back up. So altogether, they were down there between 1953-54 to 61-62. So getting out of that league couldn't have been all that easy. And we finished regularly in the top four or five. 
So whether it was easier football, I doubt. Easier football in terms of the quality. Well, there's always going to be differences in quality in eras. But if you match it pound for pound for the time, then I doubt it was any easier at all. It was. was, seven years. (laughs) Maybe it was even harder. It's hard to tell. Well, I I was talking to Simon Brundish about this for a a piece that I wrote, actually. Oh, good old Si, yeah. I I, I asked him for a comparison of of the players actually from the 60s to, to today. And he's like, you know, imagine having a five kilo weight on, on each ankle and kicking a wet fe- telephone directory around a muddy field you'll get an idea of the difference you know that's, the, that's the players. What I always call when people say what was you know, they, they say oh you old fat what was it like playing football back back then and the first things I remember is having bloody great heavy boots Never mind these light things which you break metatarsals in these days, but really big heavy boots, playing with a, a leather case football, which if it was raining, you could concuss yourself. Of course, Jeff Astle famously uh, died from header-related injuries, apparently. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I was a centre-back when I played, so I was always up for corners to head the ball or heading the ball away. And literally, it was, ugh. And you played on, even even really, to be quite honest, in the big football league games you played half the time on ploughed fields i mean if anybody wants to know even go back to the 70s on youtube and look up derby county's baseball ground for any game you like it was notorious for basically i'd playing in a swamp and stamford bridge in the 70s was like a sandpit the grass never seemed to last the season and by the time you came out to play on it in february there was a bit more sand on it than grass actually remember that (laughs) and of course then there was no undersoil heating there was no uh, teams of what what, you know everybody had a groundsman but nobody had a a turf scientist or anything like that anymore to import grass from canada and grow it specially under lights or any of this kind of stuff it was oh you know it's grass the grass was generally cut slightly longer then than it is now now amazing i actually read this in something the other day that most of the professional european leagues actually have a maximum height at which the grass must be cut uh, to play in their top leagues and i think in germany it's six millimeters the grass in a, in, a, in a bundesliga stadium must not grow more than six millimeters how do they regulate that by <laughs> having incredibly precise mowers <laughs> And of course, selecting exactly the right grass. It's it's that complex now. Where of course those days it was just a field, wasn't it? That you know, somebody looked after, kept it in good nick, painted a few lines on it, made sure that, you know, they put the fork in it to get the extra water out. Uh, if they if it got a bit cut up round the goal area, which it always did of course, uh, you would put pieces in. If you look at seventies matches, even at Anfield, Anfield always had one of the best pitches. But if you look at them, you'll see where there's pieces being cut out and put in which are a different colour because it worn away. <laughs> or you'd get the the area would uh, be turned into a bog and they'll have scattered sand and grass seed in it and so you've got little patches growing up weirdly amongst the sand look yeah i mean literally i remember once i heard it again in the oh what was it i might have been the chelsea under ranieri's they were trying to relay their awful pitch. Uh, it's much better now, to be fair to them. But back then, it was still bloody awful. They were trying to relay it, and they had the same problems they'd had for 40-odd years. And they had to scatter the new pitch with sand again, and it got referred to as Stamford Beach instead of Stamford Bridge. And Oh, oh that's funny. Yeah, this, this, was, this was typical. One of the best and one of the worst pitches, depending on what time of year you went there, was West Ham's at Upton Park. See, they prided themselves on this passing science football game from Ron Greenwood onwards. And if you go there, you'd look at the pitch and think, good God, that's gorgeous. No, it's so beautiful and even and green. You go there in March and you think, Jesus Christ, my back garden's a better nick than this. It's, it, it, 
It was just uncontrollable in a way that is now almost perfectly controllable. Well, I this mean, is a, this is an an interesting point that you you make. For example, the the kind of the death knell for Phil Taylor in what fifty eight or fifty nine was getting yeah. knocked out of the uh, the FA Cup by Worcester City, and yeah. they talk about the pitch. Exactly, they got, they got the, the tie, was... and uh, they ended up pouring salt all over the pitch. Yes. Uh, in order to keep it from freezing because it had been a terrible winter. And, of course, it made it perfect for anyone who just wanted to lump the ball up the field. And we ended up going down 1-0. And uh, the rest is two one. infamy. 2-1. Two 2-1, one. Oh, rather. Yeah. Uh, sorry, 1-0 uh, at halftime. And then, uh, well, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a pitch that players couldn't afford to really tackle on or do sliding tackles because it was covered in salt. So, so you know, uh, <laughs> when, we look at, when we look at the differences between the leagues, too, the, I, I still, I would contend, probably the step up now. It would be interesting to look at the stats about the teams that stay up in their first year and so on. But the step up now to the premiership is so significant because of the difference in money between the... the money makes a difference, absolutely. That you, you need to catch some clubs going in the wrong direction in a pretty significant way, I think, for all three teams that are coming up to stay up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, the, the, the teams that come up, they do get a... I can't remember, is it 60 million or something? just for being promoted or something daft, to enable them to compete. But of course, when you spend £59 million on Di Maria and use him for a year, £60 million doesn't buy you an awful lot in that respect, unless you have a really good canny manager or a bloody good set of scouts or, or whatever it is that, that, that does the buying at your club. It's not everybody who can go out and get a Xabi Alonso for £10 million or a Philip Coutinho for £10 million. The, That is more... Once upon a time, that was pretty much how it was done amongst the better clubs. Now that kind of thing is getting more and more rare to the point where if somebody costs... I've actually seen this in, with Liverpool fans who should know better on Twitter saying that a certain player only costs £10 million. That's no good. I want to see us spend £40 million on a marquee player. Right. So you, 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 it's not the player, it's the amount you pay for him that impresses you. Well, no, 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 it's the player. Then why did you mention the money and not the player? Uh, and you see that all the time. So the money plays not just a part in the actual game itself, but in the thinking of the fans. And also these players are built up, you know, into myths and legends. And, and mm. you know, the, the, and they're starting to believe their own hype. We believe the hype. And, and you know, you believe the hype around the, the, the prices of the transfer, the touted transfer fees that are, that are mentioned for these players. And, you know, I suppose in the PlayStation generation of the football managers and the FIFAs and whatnot, that's, that's what kids today are talking about. That's, like, I have, two, I have two sons, 22 and 19. That's all they do, play football manager in FIFA. And they think they know everything <laughs> about football. You know, it, it just does my head in. But, Absolutely. You, you know, it, it, that is where this whole money thing and, and you know, what do you expect for a £40 million player? What do you expect for a 30 million? And, and I do feel that an awful lot of people sort of base it on these computer games. I think it's all wrong. Absolutely, they do. Okay, then, guys, I think we should wrap it up there. And next time we come back, we'll probably be having a look at this promotion year we've just touched on Fantastic. in much more detail. What we've done today is lay out the foundations for where Liverpool began. We didn't talk too much directly about the teams that Shanky was trying to create, but we'll catch up with that next time. What we really after this time round was setting the bigger picture. So I hope everybody's enjoyed it, and uh, we'll come back for the next one, whenever that may be. Okay, cheers, Mike. Cheers, Dave. Bye, fella. Thanks for having me, as always. Pleasure, as always. Anytime, Dave. See ya. Take care. Cheers. Okay. Okay. If you've been affected by any of the topics raised in tonight's Jumpers for Gobo, do us a favour, keep it to yourself.
Social Podcast Network.